Today's Bible reading is chapter 21, verses 1 to 21, the birth of Isaac. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered into the desert of Bathsheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has served the boy crying as he lies God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Thank you. Thank you, Annette. Thank you, Rachel. All right, so we're in Genesis still. Going to be there for a little while. 
um, Genesis 21, but I'm also going to give you a bit of background on Genesis 20 because it's relevant. But I've got a story for you first. On the 2nd of April in 1945, uh, there was a 16-year-old boy. His name was Mitsuaki Omata, and he lived in Tokyo on a farm, which doesn't sound right to me because Tokyo is a big city, but this is, this is the information I've been given, uh, possibly on the outskirts of Tokyo. And he and his father were hiding in the entrance of a homemade bomb shelter, watching a squadron of American B-29 bombers fly overhead when one of them was shot down and landed in his field. Now, B-29 bombers had 11 crew on board, and they were also filled with bombs. So obviously, when the plane crashed, they all died instantly. But Mitsuaki's father was a devout Buddhist. Uh, Buddhism was very common in, in that part of the world, still is. Uh, but this man was a very devout Buddhist, and he believed that these men deserved the dignity of a proper burial. And so he and his son, Mitsuaki, took the bodies out of the wreckage, and they buried them in their family's ancestral cemetery, which is a big deal in Japan. And then at the end of the war, uh, they returned the bodies to the US military, who moved them to a military cemetery in Yokohama. They're still there today, but even that wasn't enough. And so Mitsuaki's father was getting old by this point, and he asked his son to find the families of these men and tell them what had happened. Because when a plane is shot down, doesn't matter who, which country, if a plane is shot down in combat and they don't know for certain what's happened, those people are classified as missing in action. And their families often never get answers. And so Mitsuaki promised his father. He said, yes, Dad, I promise I'll find all 11 families and I'll, I'll tell them what happened to their loved ones. And 70 years later, he found the final family. So it took him a long time, 70 years. He was 16 when that happened, so that's his whole life right there. But he kept his promise. And promises are a, a funny thing, aren't they? It's so easy to make a promise. And sometimes it's really easy to break a promise as well especially when we make promises that we shouldn't maybe have made in the first place. And I think we can all think of a, a few examples of those from our world currently and in recent history. And sometimes when things take a while, we assume that it's not going to happen or, or they've forgotten about me. This promise isn't going to be kept. It's not going to be fulfilled. Well, today's passage is all about promises. In fact, there's, there's three kind of key moments that are about a promise in this passage. There's a promise fulfilled. There is a promise moved forward a little bit. And then there is a promise renewed. So before we jump in here, uh, a little bit of context, because context is always important. In the evening service, we've been talking about two key things that are happening in this part of Genesis. So from Genesis 12 up to now. The first one is that God is revealing himself to us. This is all happening in a time where God was not universally worshipped or even universally known about. 
In fact, there's actually not even any evidence that Abraham was worshipping God before the moment where God spoke to him in chapter 12. It's highly likely that Abraham, like most of the people at that time, had a bunch of gods that they worshipped. Nations had a few different gods that were their gods. Individual families might have a few different gods. It was a polytheistic society. And so, as we look at Genesis, what we're seeing is God introducing himself. God saying, this is who I am. This is how powerful I am. This is why you should follow me. And it's not just happening to Abraham, is it? Although Abraham, he's got a front row seat to all of this. But it's Abraham and his family and his friends and the different people that he encounters as he travels and lives this nomadic lifestyle. And it's also us, through the written account of these events, we, people like us, generations later, also get introduced to the character of God through Abraham's story and through the story of his descendants. And the second thing that's happening very specifically from Genesis 12 to Genesis 21 is that God is slowly picking away and removing different explanations for where Abraham and Sarah's child might have come from. Most people back then and even today grow their families through conceiving at a normal age, probably after they've gotten married. That's not where Isaac came from. Some people choose to adopt, and Abraham and Sarah made two attempts at adoption. They, they, had, they took in Lot, their nephew, when his father passed away, and then after he left their household, there is a reference made to having adopted a servant who was going to inherit their estate because they were childless. But God says, no, that servant is not the way that I'm going to grow your family. And so then they try surrogacy. They try using a slave, and we know that legally, when... In these situations, this was quite a common occurrence, um, and in these situations when a, a, a couple couldn't have a child, they would find a slave, and that child that the slave conceived would legally belong to the married couple, not to the slave. So this was a legitimate thing, we've tried surrogacy, but God says, sure, you can have a child through surrogacy, but that's not the child who's going to receive the promises. And then we get to chapter 20, and what we see in chapter 20 is another explanation slowly removed. So let me give you a quick rundown of what happens in chapter 20. At this point, God has told them that Sarah will give birth in a year. So it's on, it's happening. This is no longer some kind of one day in the distant future, maybe. This is happening very soon. And they're in a country called Gerar. Gerar. I don't know how to pronounce that one. And once again, Abraham does this thing where he says, hi, everyone, my name's Abraham, and this is my sister, Sarah. We know he's done it before, and we actually find out in chapter 20 that he does it a lot, possibly even every time he's in a foreign country, which, given his nomadic lifestyle, would be a lot. And Abimelech is the king of this country, and, and he looks at Sarah, and he goes, wow, she's really beautiful, and she's obviously single because she's traveling with her brother, so she can be added into my harem. But God intervenes in a pretty miraculous way. He comes to Abimelech in a dream, and Abimelech returns Sarah to Abraham without touching her. And so we see two things again happening in this passage. Number one, another possible explanation for this child has been removed. It's not coming from another man either. 
And number two, we see God revealing himself through Abraham and his actions to Abimelech and his people. And so by the time we get to the beginning of chapter one, all of our options are exhausted. Biology, not happening, right? Biologically, a 90-year-old and a 100-year-old are probably not going to be having a baby. I also, I'm not sure that they would want to at that age, but I, I don't know. So, uh, and, and there's also no, for lack of a better word, other methods, right? There's no adoption, there's no surrogacy, there is nothing, there is no possible way for these two people to have a baby. And yet, what do we see at the beginning of Genesis 21, just kind of put in there like it's no big deal at all, Sarah conceives has a baby just as God has promised them. At 90 and 100 years old, Sarah and Abraham have become parents for the first time, Abraham for the second time, but for the first time together. And it's all thanks to God's incredible power and goodness because it is very clear, if you've read Genesis from chapter 12 up to now, it is very, very clear that this child can only come from one place and that is a divine intervention a miraculous act of God, presented as if it's a very ordinary, everyday thing. And they name him Isaac, which means he laughs, which is a nice little nod to both of them laughing at God when he said they were going to have a baby. And they circumcise him according to God's commandment, and they express their shock and their gratitude to God for this incredible thing that he has done in their lives. A promise has been fulfilled. He promised them family, and he delivered. They had to wait quite a long time, but he promised them a family, and he delivered. Our God has revealed himself as a God who keeps his promises. And then we move forward a little bit. A few years later, Isaac has been weaned. Now, typically in ancient Near Eastern cultures, that would happen kind of between 18 months and five years of age. That's a very big age bracket, but there's a lot of variables in there. And a child being weaned was a big deal. It was a milestone. In the same way that we might celebrate an 18th birthday or a a school graduation, the weaning of a baby is a big deal because infancy was a dangerous time. They didn't have hospitals, they didn't have all the wonderful medical knowledge and research that we have. Lots and lots of babies died in their infancy. And so to celebrate the weaning was to celebrate the moment this child stops being a baby and starts being a child, and they've survived this long. It's a big deal, so they have a big party. Everyone they know would be there, Um, possibly even some of Abimelech's men, considering they were in his country. You would invite everyone. This was a big deal. And when I say everyone... Obviously, I'm also including Hagar and Ishmael in that. Now, if you remember, Ishmael is Hagar and Abraham's child, uh, the the child conceived through surrogacy, although the legalities on that, you know, depending, would probably, by the rest of society, have been seen as Sarah and Abraham's child. And he's there. At this point, he he was 14 when... Isaac was born, so at this point he's 15 to 19 years old, he's a teenage boy, and Sarah catches him mocking at the party. I don't know if any of you have spoken to any teenage boys recently, any 15 to 19 year old boys? 
I think you'll find that mocking is something that they do quite a lot of. It's something I see all the time at youth group, all the time. They're never not mocking. And so we don't get a lot of detail about this situation. It's quite possible that Ishmael has said something really horrific and he's crossed a line. But given Sarah and Hagar's relationship and the living reminder that Ishmael is of those events, it's also possible that Sarah's a little bit sensitive and it's possible that he was just being a teenager. We don't know. Either way, Sarah's upset. And she takes the opportunity to go to Abraham and to ask him to send Ishmael away because she doesn't want that other boy receiving her son's inheritance. Abraham is troubled, but God tells him to do what Sarah says. That might seem a little bit odd. Just send him away. You don't need him anymore. You've got Isaac now. So what's actually going on here? I think this is actually something that we've seen already in Abraham's story. So at the beginning of this chapter, we're reminded of God being a God who keeps his promises. And God has made three promises to Abraham, hasn't he? He's promised him land, he's promised him family, and he's promised blessings, that Abraham will be a blessing to others and will also receive blessings for himself. Now, the family promise, God has been pretty clear that Isaac is the one. So, check, promise fulfilled. The land promise, that's going to be a bit of a gradual thing, um, but God has told Abraham that this is the specific land that his descendants will inherit. And at the end of this chapter, we'll actually see a tiny little, we're not going to get to it today, but a tiny little step forward on that promise where Abraham is granted water rights, the right to have a well in this land. So another little step forward there. Uh, but that's going to be an ongoing thing. And then the blessings, I think we can see that the blessings are also kind of an ongoing thing. Abraham has been a blessing at this point to many people. He's also received many blessings and will continue to be and receive blessings. But you see, there's a bit of an obstacle to these promises. And in order to tell you what that is, I'm going to take you back to Genesis 13. You might remember that um, in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 12, they've been in Egypt, and Abraham has done the same thing. Hi, I'm Abraham. This is my sister. Her name is Sarah. And Pharaoh has taken Sarah into his harem, and it's a whole situation. And through that situation, Abraham has done very well for himself in Egypt. He has got livestock and, and possessions and wealth. And not only Abraham, but Lot as well. They have come out of Egypt with everything, all the riches of Egypt on their backs. And they quickly realize in chapter 13 that actually we've got so much stuff. Our families are so big, our estates are so big, our flocks and our herds are so big that the land cannot sustain us and we have no choice but to split up. And so Lot goes to the east. Abraham very generously lets Lot choose and Abraham chooses the east. And Abraham goes to the west. And it's worth mentioning that they don't part on bad terms. In fact, they part in order to avoid having to part on bad terms later. Abraham says, let's not have any quarreling. Let's part on good terms. And we can see that they parted on good terms because later when Lot is kidnapped, Abraham goes to his rescue. And we can see that they had a good relationship because they stayed together for a very long time. 
and it probably saddened both of them to have to split up, but practically they had no choice. And what happened as soon as they split up? When Abraham goes to the west and he enters the land that they've decided that he will get, God says, hey Abraham, this is it. This is the land that your descendants are going to inherit. Walk through it, check it out, have a look. And so even though Lot was a beloved family member, even though they parted on good terms, even though they seemed to have had a very good relationship, Lot was an obstacle to Abram, Abraham, Abram at the time, entering the land. And as his nephew, who was a part of his household, Lot would probably, at the time, if Abraham had passed away, have inherited all of Abraham's estate. So Lot is a bit of an obstacle here, even though he's not a bad person, he's not causing any trouble at this point, it's still not going to happen when they stay together. And so back to Genesis 21, can we see those parallels? We've had an encounter with a king in a foreign country, and then um, Sarah has had this baby who is going to be the one who fulfills God's promise of descendants to them. But again, there's an obstacle because Ishmael is a legitimate son. Legally at the time, he would have been seen as a legitimate son and therefore as the person who inherits the larger portion of Abraham's estate. Legally, Ishmael has a right to this inheritance. But at the same time, Ishmael does not have a right to the things that God has promised Abraham for Isaac. And we see that Abraham is sad about Ishmael having to leave. We see that he doesn't want to send his son away. But it's also pretty clear that Ishmael's got to go. And so Abraham packs up some food, he packs up some water, and he sends Ishmael away with his mother. And this is the first step towards ensuring that Isaac receives the promises that God has made for him. We see steps taken towards the fulfillment, towards the later fulfillment of a promise. But this is not just good news for Isaac. Even though it doesn't seem like it, it's actually pretty good news for Ishmael as well. Because at the same time, there is a promise over Ishmael's life as well. And if you remember when Hagar ran away when she was pregnant, God said to her, I will make your son a father of nations as well. And so for them to separate, just like for Abraham and Lot to separate, gave them the space and, and allowed Abraham to be able to move into the land, for Ishmael and Isaac to separate is also necessary for the ful fulfillment of both of those promises. And we get to see, uh, towards the end of the passage that was read out today, we do get to see Ishmael grow up and get married. And again, that's another step. You can't be a father of anything if you don't have a wife to give you the children. So we see the another step taken for Ishmael towards that promise. But before we get to that, we see a promise renewed. So we've gone from a fulfilled promise to 
necessary steps taken towards the later fulfillment of another promise, and now we get to see a promise renewed. And this is one of my favourite things in Genesis. Because last time Hagar was alone in the desert running away, God saw her and he spoke to her. And that is incredible. Because she was a nobody. She was a slave. She wasn't allowed to own property. She wasn't allowed to do anything. She wasn't seen as an autonomous person legally. She was seen as the possession of whoever owned her. But God saw her and spoke to her. And he does it again here. And he says, Hagar, he says her name. And he says, I haven't forgotten my promise to you. I'm still working on that. Your son will be a father of nations as well. He's not going to die in the desert. God makes sure that they've got water and that they're able to live because he's got big plans for Ishmael as well. And in her own words, God is the God who sees Hagar. And so we see the three promises in this passage. But where, where do we go from here? What do we take away from this? I think there's a few things. The first one, and I hope this is an obvious one, sometimes the Sunday school answer is not always the right answer, but in this passage it is. What is the point of this? Our God keeps his promises. And if you remember nothing else from today, please remember that. God keeps his promises. And it took 25 years from the first time God said, hey, Abraham, you're going to have a kid, to the time when he actually had a kid, or had the right kid. 25, that sounds really bad. <laughs> um, we all know what I mean. Um, 25 years of waiting, and let's be honest, in that job, God's job only got harder because they got 25 years older. But God still made it happen. And I think the reason why we're inspired by stories like the one I told at the beginning about Mitsuaki, Omitar, the reason why we're inspired by those stories is because they remind us of the power of a promise fulfilled. And we worship a God who keeps his promises. So we hear stories like that and our minds turn to God and to his promises and the ones he has already fulfilled and the ones that are yet to come. The second thing I think we can see pretty clearly here is that sometimes in order for God's work to be fulfilled in our lives, we have to give up some really good things. Abraham had pretty good relationships, it seems, with Lot and with Ishmael. And we can see that from the, the few interactions we see between them in Scripture. There were people that he loved and he clearly enjoyed spending time with them. But in order for God's promises to be fulfilled, they had to be sent away. I've got some friends who uh, a couple of months ago gave away quite a lot uh, because God called them to be missionaries in France. And so they went from living 15 minutes away from both sets of parents who would help look after their kids and living down the road from church, very close to all of their church friends, having really busy social lives, their kids being really well adjusted 
to living in a foreign country where they don't speak the language, their kids have been sick from day one. They have given up an enormous amount of really good and wonderful things in order for God's work to be fulfilled in their lives and in the lives of some people in Paris who will hear about God because of them. Sometimes we're asked to give up a lot and it can be really hard to trust God but we see that he's a God who keeps his promises. And finally, I think God's interaction with Hagar should not be ignored. There's two of them. Most of the women in the Old Testament, first of all, are not even named. Secondly, they don't get face-to-face interactions with God, and the women who do get to speak to God in the Old Testament, most of them seek him out. Most of them pray, and then he speaks to them. Hagar is alone in the desert. She's not thinking about God. She's thinking about where can I get a drink of water. But God sees her and God speaks to her. And if God sees people like her, the least worthy according to her society, she's not a person who deserves glory or honor, she's a slave. People wouldn't even look at her. The the job of a slave was to be invisible. But God saw her and God spoke to her twice by name. And I think that is a powerful reminder to us of two things. Number one, it's not me who decides who is worthy. It's not you who decides who is worthy. That's probably a good thing because I think we'd all go, well, I'm worthy and I don't know about the other people. God decides who is worthy and let's be honest none of us are and even though we're not worthy God chooses to speak to us the Bible is full of stories of people like Hagar people who we might term the least of these but God uses the foolish things of this world the unworthy things of this world and that is a pattern we see over and over again in scripture and whenever we see that we should praise God because we are all unworthy And he sees the unworthy people. He speaks to the unworthy people. He uses the unworthy people. And so I hope that encourages you in many ways. Uh, And I'm going to pray now. Lord God, we just thank you so much that you are a God who keeps your promises. We know that you have made some really big and seemingly impossible promises in Scripture And we thank you so much that we have a written record of those promises, the ones that have already been fulfilled and the ones that we're still waiting on. And Lord, I just ask that as we go from this place, we would be encouraged by the way that you treat all people, that we would be encouraged by the way that you keep your promises. And Lord, when we're asked to give up good things, things we love, things that are really hard to give up, we just ask, (coughs) excuse me, we just ask that you would help us to trust you in that and to know that you are good (coughs) and that you keep your promises. Amen.